Hey everybody, welcome back to the Noggin Notes podcast. My name is Jake Wiskirchen. I am your host and the show is brought to you by Zephyr Wellness, which invites you to check out its YouTube channel. Zephyr Wellness has a YouTube channel. It uh, has one guy on it. It's me, but uh, I think the videos are amazing, probably because I put them there. But seriously, check out the YouTube channel. It covers a lot of psychological concepts and counseling that are uh, usually brief, quick hitters, uh, often no more than a couple of minutes. Uh, Some of them go as much as uh, 12 or 15 minutes. And there are two videos on there about understanding emotions, parts one and two. And I draw on a whiteboard the concepts that I'm explaining here in this podcast about understanding the concepts of emotional functioning. So check out the Zephyr Wellness YouTube channel and uh, leave us a comment. Uh, give, give some information back and maybe even write into this show, info at nogginnotes.com, info at zephyrwellness.org, with some ideas about future shows. We'd appreciate that. Thanks to Dash Radio for supporting our endeavors and putting us on the Real Life Radio channel. We really appreciate that, and it gives us a broader platform to reach more people, and ultimately the goal is broader mental wellness for everybody. If everybody's healthy, and I don't have to work for a living because uh, everybody around me is happy and pursuing their goals, then I will gladly go do anything else because the community would just be so amazing to be in. So uh, please share this stuff. It doesn't do any good locked up in my head. That's why I give it to you guys for free. So please invite others to Noggin Notes and, uh, and of course, the Zephyr Wellness YouTube channel and um, help, help, them, help them out. And no, no, uh, no assumptions there. Just, just share knowledge. That's all it is. And, uh, one good way to do that is be like, Hey, I just found this really cool podcast with this really awesome guy who's a clinician in Nevada. And, uh, he seems to know what he's talking about. And he's super humble too. Just ask him. He'll tell you how humble he really is. (laughs) All right. Well, enough of me. This is uh, our episode on disgust and contempt. I spent a lot of time talking about it, so I'm not going to talk about it here. Just enjoy the understanding of what disgust and contempt are and how they do or don't work for you. This is the Noggin Notes Podcast. I'm Jake Wiskirchen. Hey, welcome back, loyal listeners. This episode is on disgust and contempt. And in the spirit of transparency, I'm going to do something a little unusual. I'm going to read straight from Izzard's book for most of this. I'm not going to do too much ad-libbing. I found that the way that he wrote this in the book, it it lays it out perfectly well, and I don't need to do any editorializing along the way. So I've done enough of this, I think. I've done enough public presentations, and I've been in education long enough that I don't think it's going to be clunky or awkward for anyone. I'm going to read the best that I can in conversational tone and paraphrase as I go. So... um, that's going to be what happens. So if it sounds like I'm, I'm just straight up ripping him off or plagiarizing him, <laughs> I'm not. I'm, I'm giving due credit and I'm telling you what I'm doing. I'm going, to, I'm going to basically read straight from the book. So starting off, I do want to lay the, the groundwork that basically gives an overview of what disgust and contempt are as adaptive functions within our emotional uh, system. And for those of you who are maybe just joining us, the, the book and the author to whom I'm referring are um, The Psychology of Emotions by Carol Izzard. Uh, it's, it's where I've drawn heavily from in relaying this information to the audience. And I find it a, an invaluable book, not only to, to this topic, but to the profession as a whole, because it interweaves very well with tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of research references 
the interplay between psychology and emotion. And so when I, I teasingly say that Carol Lizard literally wrote the book on the psychology of emotions, that's it's, the, it's literally the title. So um, this is this is what I use. This is my my Bible, so to speak. And when we're breaking down the adaptive function of these emotions, uh, disgust, generically speaking, is uh, is useful to keep us healthy and uh, keep us away from things that might infect us or cause us harm. So when you have a disgust reaction, I mean, I think most people know what that is. It's when you look at something that's not good for you and, and might be unhealthy and you, you have that gag reflex maybe and you know, your, your, your innards kind of churn and, and maybe your, your, your tongue goes out and you want to, you want to barf. So this is useful because it keeps us away from things like, excuse me, as I burp into the microphone, that's excellent radio. <laughs> um, it keeps us away from things like, you know, rotting meat and, and dog poop and, and so forth. But what Izzard does in this chapter is he, he takes a much deeper evaluation of what the function of, of, uh, disgust does, especially as it, interplays with uh, anger and contempt, which he refers to as the hostility triad. Now, contempt's function, uh, near as we can understand it, is useful for conquering others. Now, what, what it literally tells us is that, that you look down upon other people as though they're not as good as you are, or you're, you're better than they are, so there's feelings of superiority associated with it. Um, chiefly, we use this for things like conquering and wartime and defense, because they require the infliction of pain upon others. And I mean, let's face it, it's really hard to inflict, inflict pain upon other people unless you don't think they're like you. So contempt is, is the root of the us, us versus them mentality and, and a lot of other stuff. So that's the, that's the edit. Um, I'm sorry, that's the extent of the ad libbing and editorializing I'm going to do. I'm I, now I'm just going to pull straight from the book. So what we're talking about with disgust is that it, it's one of the our most primordial primordial emotions. Um, it, it's it's in a part of the brain that's the oldest, uh, neurologically speaking. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, evolutionary speaking. Um, so it's been around for a long time, and we can reasonably say that even in early infancy, we can identify what disgust is. So, uh, you know, such as a bitter taste or spoiled food, uh, the, the human being baby eventually learns to feel disgusted at a wide variety of events over time, um, and objects as well. So, no, so we have two, twofold here. Um, we have the disgust that's instinctive and keeps us away from things that are unhealthy, but then we have learned disgust. Uh, so uh, we can be taught that things are, are unhealthy, and this takes on different implications later on, as you'll see. So uh, what are some causes of disgust? Well, uh, one theory of disgust is defined strictly as a, a food-related emotion, and it's considered you know revulsion at the prospect of eating offensive objects. Um, now, these, these researchers restrict the range of these offensive objects to animal and animal products. Um, and they, and they describe four types of, of rejection. There's distaste, a danger, maybe a food that's known to be poisonous, uh, inappropriate. So things that aren't inedible, like, uh, you know, wood or sand or rocks. And then, um, and then just disgust in and of itself is the fourth one. That would be food objects that are thought to be contaminated. So you got distaste, which is what you don't like. Danger could be poisonous and then inappropriate, which, you know, you don't eat. Um, and then disgust, which is where you, you think that maybe it's infected. So uh, an offensive object might, might be rejected because of distaste, but 
to be rejected because of disgust. You have to believe that it's been in contact with some other offending thing. So there, there starts to be this creep in of frontal lobe evaluation. So there's cognitive processes going on with disgust as well, depending on whether it's it's instinctive uh, based on whether you, whether or not you like it versus um, a little bit of evaluation going into it with with frontal lobe where you've been told or you've been informed somewhere along the way that that the the food is contacted something that you say it hit the floor well now you're you're disgusted at it. you're not it's not necessarily just distasteful right so how do we express this well um it's it's pretty unmistakable i mean you know the the, the eyebrows draw together and you know the, the the nose wrinkles maybe your tongue curls that kind of thing so um what are some some responses? So we we start to get into into things like hostility and aggression a little bit later on. I'll explain that in a minute. But but when you when you think of hatred, dislike, or appro- or disapproval of others and their actions, um, you, that can be associated with with disgust. Um, if you turn it inward and you look at yourself and you blame yourself or you think you've done something wrong, that can be that can conjure up a feeling of disgust. And then other physical feelings like nausea, fatigue, sickness. Uh, can come can come along too, as well as other emotional feelings like anger and contempt, and uh, you know a, a thought about how bad the situation is, a thought of how you might have failed other people. So it's starting to sound a little bit like guilt here too. If you if maybe you've made a mistake, you can feel guilty, but if you don't know how to identify it appropriately, it can slip into disgust, where you're disgusted at yourself. You don't think that you're you're good enough. Maybe you want to avoid yourself, or you want to avoid others as a as a means of avoiding contamination. I'll put that in air quotes. Um, yeah, you don't want to contaminate others. So um, as we move forward, what what is the function here? Why, why would we have this? Well, certainly to avoid potentially dangerous uh, subjects, uh, you know, objects or substances. Uh, we want to reject things that we don't like that don't do us any good. Um, and it can motivate learning, right? So uh, if you're if you're learning about what's healthy and unhealthy, what's going to move you forward in life, advance you towards your goals versus what's going to uh, create obstacles and stymie your progress, you're going to learn this rejection avoidance behavior. So taste may be a chemical sense and reacts only to actual substances, but the emotion of disgust can can more broadly motivate rejection or avoidance um, even when taste is totally absent. Um, so you can avoid, you know, say a foul situation rather than just a, a foul um, food product. Now, Disgust, like anger, can be directed toward the self, and I alluded to this, and I'm going to go in a little bit deeper here with with a a story that Izzard relays here from from one of his um, one of his his colleagues or, or a, a patient, I guess. Um, so, disgust, like anger, can be directed toward yourself, and and self disgust can lower self esteem and cause self rejection, and that's really really dangerous. And we start getting into things like. Um, you know, f- f- eating disorders. Um, so if, if, if you're listening and you may be struggling with some of this stuff where, where you're, you're struggling with self-acceptance, maybe you've got some self-harm behaviors, and really that's what an eating disorder is. It's a self-harm behavior just on a, on a different level from a different angle. Um, and it's starting to sound a little sensitive. You're welcome to you know turn off the radio and, and focus on something else. I don't want to I don't want to trample on people's uh, feelings here and, and invade their psychologies. But but know that that this is this has that it, it usually has a root in psych, in uh, disgust as an emotion. So um, hospitalized patients have shown that interdirected anger and disgust are usually characteristic of depression as well. So what's let's take a look at this interaction of disgust and anger. 
So while disgust alone may not be considered a serious cause of aggressive behavior, um, usually rejection or avoidance of, the, of whatever the stimulus is is, is adequate. So uh, if you're if you're disgusted at something, you can just you know step over the dog poop and not step in it and uh, and move on. However, it, this emotion of disgust can become dangerous when it interacts or combines with anger. So instead of motivation simply to reject or avoid the object, if you combine disgust with anger. Um, you may create motivation to get rid of the object through attack and destruction. And I want to pause here, and I'm going to jump ahead a few pages in the chapter, because it's it's in the contempt section that Izzard talks about hostility versus aggression, and, and it's important to know the difference between the two. So hostility is the, the series of thoughts and feelings that may roll through your head and through your body where you're envisioning... Um, harming people, uh, you're thinking about avoiding, um, you're wishing things away, you're wishing that that bad would befall a person or, you know, something like that. So that's hostility. It's it's basically, in a nutshell, it's all in your head. Now, aggression is when you act that out. Aggression, we can also almost substitute the word violence in there. Aggression is when you, you take that hostility and express it in verbal or physical activity. So if we're talking about aggression towards self versus hostility towards self, there's a very important distinction there. I can have hostility toward myself and, and have it actually be very functional where I'm might be disappointed in something that I did and it motivates me to improve. Um, but if I'm disappointed in something that I did and it's mixed with anger and then I bridge into aggression toward myself, I might, I might turn that aggression into something like self-harm. And that's where we start to get some psychological disorders. So we've already talked that, you know, disgust may play a role in eating disorders. What starts out as an eating binge may develop into bulimia or anorexia, which is which is a disorder that can have serious effects on psychological and mental health. Um, I'm going to pause for a second here. If you're a clinician listening to this and you're not familiar with eating disorders, I would invite you to become familiar with eating disorders and absorb as much knowledge as you can before engaging in treatment. Don't just take this podcast and think that you can start swinging away at somebody who's struggling with an eating disorder because eating disorders can and have killed people. And if you're not treating them with the, the, um, I guess the, the word I'm looking for is, is the, the gravity and the preciousness that they deserve, you can end up doing some serious harm. So if you're thinking that you're, you're really getting your arms around this emotional functioning stuff and you go, Oh, disgusting you know, is the root of an eating disorder. I'm just going to go tackle this, this next client who walks through my door. Um, I would strongly caution you against that without some ongoing training and education and uh, supervised experience because what you also want to wrap into somebody who's struggling with an eating disorder is good dietary, which we're really not qualified to do, um, and then obviously physical well-being. They want to be seeing a primary care physician to make sure that that there's not physiological problems uh, below the surface that could you know kill the person through malnutrition. If, they, if they're in treatment and they think that counseling is good enough, um, they may be neglecting some other areas. So uh, that's my that's my public service announcement and my d- disclaimer on this, but we'll move on for the rest of the audience who's not <laughs> clinically oriented. Um, so disgust in combination with anger may result in an overly aggressive personality or pathologically hostile behavior. So let's let's pursue this a little bit more. Disgust, and then parenthetically he writes, as well as contempt toward self can figure into an eating disorder and the bouts of depression that are so often associated with it. So Earlier in the book, he spoke with a gal named Cheryl who, who, um, who shared her story in this textbook. And Cheryl uh, writes here about this uh, description in her life 
And uh, I'm just going to read it. She says, during the time before I gave myself my first black eye, I experienced chronic depression. And then she writes with a capital C. Um, this was due to my, many factors in my life. Hating high school, feeling alone and lonely, feeling insecure and socially ineffective, uh, parenthetically shy, etc., etc. This depression was the first of, part of a complex, cyclical, repetitive pattern involving my patterns of eating as well. My lowest points emotionally often coincided with the most erratic and maladaptive, and for those of you who don't know that word, it means just unhealthy, but perhaps actually somewhat adaptive, meaning healthy, eating binges and purges. We'll get into that in a minute. It's hard to say which preceded the other, the depressive feelings or the eating binges. I would guess that it was 50-50. Sometimes my eating would cause me to feel guilt, shame, contempt, disgust, and depression first. Other times the deep depression would drive me to eat which, of course, simply furthered my feelings of self-hatred and loss of control. And she's got a really nice cycle drawn here that starts with, um, and you could pick anywhere on a cycle to start. I don't want to make this linear. So the nature of a cycle in and of itself is that you can start literally anywhere on the cycle. It doesn't matter where the beginning is. What matters is that it's cyclical. So um, we'll start, for example, with the diet. Uh, there's a resolution to lose weight, uh, fasting. And she writes, and then she draws arrows. Then it leads to feelings of self-control, mastery over the urge to eat, self-confidence. So this sounds like a good thing. But then what happens is um, it's not done the right way, and it leads to deprivation. Really begin to feel deprived of food that's been restricted. And then suddenly the, the, the ripple effect of that or the consequence is that everything looks edible and good, which leads to a binge. A binge is when you overeat. So that's a total loss of control. So she lost the control that she thought she was gaining, by, by binging. And she was binging out of the very physiological need to eat because she was depriving herself of n nourishment. She writes, uh, a sense of deprivation built, in until, built until it was no longer suppressible, eating everything and anything accessible at an incredible rate. Temporary feeling of euphoria and problems are forgotten for a time. It's a food high. Or, you know, I'm sure people have experienced this after a large buffet or just overindulging in sushi. You just, you get a little bit euphoric and you kind of forget about things. That's a that's a physiological chemical reaction that happens in our bodies. And, um, you know, some people slip into a diabetic coma if they overeat or eat too much sugar. So following the binge, guilt sets in because reality whacks her upside the head and says that you failed to meet your goals. You went off the rails. You lost control. And so do more numerous feelings after binging besides guilt. That leads to a purge. Got to get the food out. So purge is, is vomiting. It's, it's purging the food from the system. Um, use of laxatives or diuretics, excessive exercise, and so forth. The purge then leads to more guilt or uh, of the purging. Disgust for being such a gross thing or doing such a gross thing. And that's the important part. This is where disgust comes in. But she also expresses relief uh, and then repentance. So she, uh, I, I won't do that again. Uh, I'm glad that I did it. Now I'm back to now I'm back to normal. I'm back to baseline. We went through the the roller coaster, right? And then that leads to a new resolution to diet, and you're back to getting on the diet again. And so so goes the cycle. So here we have a clear view of the sequence of emotions and behaviors that characterize her eating disorder. And although there's uh, there's obviously variations in in particular details, um, the chart I think complemented by her account 
um, probably rings true for lots of people who suffer from this kind of thing. And I could easily sub in any sort of self-harm behavior for that eating disorder. It, not, it might not necessarily be binging and purging on food necessarily. It could be um, cutting on oneself. It could be smoking cigarettes. It could be overindulgence in alcohol or other um, illicit substances or even licit substances. Um, I know lots of people who smoke way too much weed, even now that it's uh, quote-unquote legal at the state level. Um, there's no, there's no balance or moderation to it. It's, it's no longer social. Like, you know, drinking is legal too, but it's not, it's not, it's not social when you're, when you're binging and purging on drinking. And, and I know lots of people who've gone through that roller coaster of guilt and shame as well. And then hating themselves, right? So we get into this self-hate, uh, which is the inner directed anger or inner directed hostility. And then there's sorrow, which is sadness. That's another one of the emotions that we've covered is equivalent to the emotion of sadness. So, um, she lifts both disgust and contempt and that they're particularly inner-directed. Uh, this, this probably helped motivate her physical self-abuse and are part of the, you know, quote-unquote, total rage towards oneself that she mentions later. Uh, people with eating disorders may not ordinarily think of disgust and contempt as contributing to their misery, uh, but they're sometimes very, very real important factors, and I think that's, that's why I want to spend so much time highlighting this. I don't, I don't mean to turn this into a, an eating disorder podcast or a, or a self-harm podcast, but they're... There, I, I believe that in my experience, um, and I've experienced this quite a bit, that in I would I would reasonably say that um, every person I with whom I've interacted who has a, a body dysmorphic disorder, meaning they they just look at themselves and they don't think that they look good, and or an eating disorder and or self harm has disgust or self disgust at the root of it, and um, and I can I can be very candid and say that early in my career I didn't I didn't appreciate that I didn't I didn't understand it well enough and um and diving in now has helped me give get a greater understanding so i hope this is helpful to you too um moving on i wanted to talk about the idea that um disgust can be um levied at other people too right so um if you're disgusted at oneself it's pretty easy to be disgusted at others and this is the where where i'm breaking script from izzard's book there's an article, and all you got to do is Google it. It's called, It's No Coincidence That Hitler Was a Germaphobe. And it's on a, a website called bigthink.com. And it's by a, an author named Stephen Johnson. I'm not going to read the article to you, but in a nutshell, and it's very, very good. It's really good. And it's uh, it's got links to uh, other articles and research and, and a couple of videos. And it's it's quite exceptional. So it's called, It's No Coincidence That Hitler Was a Germaphobe. In a nutshell, Adolf Hitler, through lots of uh, research about him for, for several years, he had these people who would uh, just take notes about his um, uh, random sporadic utterances at the dinner table. And so we have lots of information compiled based on what on things that he said over a very long period of time that leads researchers to believe that he suffered from a, or I don't know if you say suffer, it's, that's object, you know, it's subjective to the person's perspective, but we'll say that he, he, uh, he may have struggled with an obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and he certainly was neurotic about, it. he bathed four times a day and that kind of thing. He was neurotic about order and cleanliness. And, and what that ended up doing was that disgust, that, that very high sensitivity to disgust translated itself into his propaganda and his literature that he, he pushed out as well as his own philosophies about, eradication of the Jewish people. He saw them as 
uh, viruses uh, that were in. Infe- you know, I'm putting all this in air quotes. You can't see it because this is radio, but I'm but I'm putting my fingers in the air. And they were quote unquote viruses that quote unquote infected the you know the quote unquote the body of uh, Germany and and of the world. So there there's all this. Um, immunology metaphor and there's all this uh this this uh disease metaphor that that weaves throughout all of hitler's um, i don't say all but most of hitler's writings and so while this is a very extreme example of of a person who uh went way hyperbolic to the end to you know so far as to eradicate human beings that he saw as infectious um, the disgust response turned outward can absolutely do the same thing in modern society with normal functioning people who are not, um, you know, fearers of the Third Reich. Uh, think, for example, as you're walking down the street and you notice someone who may be uh, clothed in a way that you were trained or brought up to believe was, was not appropriate. You may shield your eyes, you may make a snarky comment, you may be sarcastic about it, or if you have children, you may teach your children the same thing, like, hey, we don't hang around with people who dress like that, or who talk like that, or who or who aren't clean, or whatever it is. So um, we still do this today. Um, think about, you know, the, some of the, the, just the nasty responses that I've got to very reasonable human beings that I've heard from friends and colleagues over the years. They're rooted in disgust, and it's and it's not out of that that aforementioned food disgust, where something may be uh, contaminated and unhealthy for the physical body. But what it is 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 quote unquote contaminated for the ideological body. So if if you have an ideology that says life should be blah blah blah, or politics should be blah blah blah, or um, work environment should be this and such, well then what ends up happening is if something contradicts that. Um, and we believe that it's somehow unhealthy or unfit and doesn't um, necessarily mesh with our worldview, we can have a disgust response to that that says, stay away, reject, avoid. So we want to be aware of that. And I'm going to pick up in contempt um, on the other half of this, uh, on the other side of this break. I'm going to take a quick break right now, and then uh, we'll continue with contempt because contempt folds right into disgust. That's why they're written in the same chapter in Izzard's book. Um, you're listening to the Noggin Notes podcast. Hey, we're back, and we are talking about disgust and contempt, and I left off with the tease that we would be talking about contempt, because from disgust feelings projected out toward other individuals and not necessarily objects or food, we arrive at contempt. Now, contempt is... Um, is present in that story of uh, that, that Cheryl related about her self-abuse. Um, yet it's, it's pretty difficult to understand because when we ask, you know, how did this ever become a part of human nature? It's, it's a tough question to answer. Now the expression is clear enough. The motivational experience that accompanies it, um, serves, you know, different, uh, different functions. So, uh, determining the constructive adaptive functions of contempt is very challenging because it, it doesn't seem like it's useful to a population, whether that be, population be humans or deer or you know fungus. Um, it it doesn't seem ad- adaptive to the population to to want to inflict pain upon itself. So, uh, from a biological perspective, you know what? Why would we? Why would we have this? Well, um, a triumph over a competitor may lead to contempt. So, if we interpret triumph very broadly to include all kinds of wins, physical, verbal, or imagined, uh, we interpret the notion of 
uh, competition or competitor equally broadly, then our triumph over a competitor may be a general and basic source of contempt. One part of the self, um, you know, maybe your awareness or your, or your ego feeling superior to another part may lead to self-contempt. So uh, that's that's a little deeper. That was just a nugget for um, the, the clinicians in the audience. But another way of viewing triumph over competitors to take the vantage point of the winner. Anytime you see a win or you see yourself in triumphant in any way, it's easier. It's easy to see yourself as superior, at least for the moment, and at least in that particular situation in which you find yourself. So these, uh, you know, evaluations or these appraisals can characterize the term that wins and um, you know, characterize the team that wins and all supporters of the team. Uh, they can also characterize a family, a particular community, a socioeconomic class, an ethnic, an ethnic group, or a race. So um, Izzard shares a chart here of um, uh, antecedents, meaning the, the thing that preceded uh, the, the experience of contempt. And the feelings listed in order are, uh, the percent, and based on percentage of people giving the response, feeling of superiority, 59.3% of the time. Second place is uh, feeling misled, betrayed, used, disappointed, or hurt by others. And that's only 10.5% of the time. And then they go down from there. You got disapproval, um, discuss synonyms like revulsion or aversion, shame. Uh, so shame factors in here, and then and then anger. Um and then as we as we move through the responses like you know thoughts uh, disapproving of other people's actions that's certainly contempt contemptuous behavior right when you look at somebody else and you you look down your nose at them like like ugh i can't believe you did that that's that's contempt right there and people reported 40% of the time that um that that, that a disapproving of an of another person's action leads to contempt um and then also in that category, you know, believing that you've been misled or betrayed or, or used by others, um, acting superiorly uh, or acting condescendingly will precede contempt. Uh, success when other th- others thought you could not, or maybe you outperformed, you performed per- superior work, uh, that'll lead to a, uh, an experience of contempt. Uh, so there, and then again, we have the superiority thing, but this one is more of a surprise. Like, you know, you surprise everybody and you're doing that. I told you so dance. Uh, so that's that's contempt. Uh, so as we move through this, like what's what's really interesting is that uh, cross cultural studies, the the expression of the fundamental emotions, as we've shared before, thought it was possible to depict contempt in a way that's distinct from disgust and anger, and and we definitely found that out. So contempt looks on the face different than disgust, and it looks different than anger. And that's really important. And I mentioned this before, and I probably haven't spent enough time on it. But facial expression of these 10 core emotions is critical to interpersonal communication. So if you're feeling something and you're not expressing it accurately on your face, people don't know where you stand. They don't know what you're feeling, and it makes it really hard to respond to an inaccurate expression uh, or to... Or to no expression at all. So if you think about people who have just, you know, flattened their faces and shrug off everything, up, oh, doesn't bother me. Nope, nope. Grandma just died. Don't care. Um, no, it doesn't. Doesn't matter that I just got fired from my job for no reason, or that somebody sabotaged my career. Nope, doesn't care. You know, I don't care. Doesn't matter. That makes it really hard to empathize because we don't know what you're really feeling. We can only judge it based on words. And if we can listen to those words, we can make certain distinctions. So if grandma just died and the person's got a flat face, we can reasonably label that sadness. But that because but that's because we've studied sadness and we know what it is, so we can accurately meet that person where they are. Similarly, with with um, the the getting fired from a job or having a career sabotage, and be like, "Wow, man, 
you must really hate those people. You know, like I could jump to hatred as, as, a, as a condescending expression of contempt and start to validate that person's emotion so that they come, come out of their shell a little bit. And that, that's important for human connectivity. So we want to we want to be mindful of the facial expressions of these two. Um, so getting back to the functions, though, what's the function of contempt? Well, from an evolutionary pers- perspective, contempt may have you know emerged as a vehicle for preparing an individual or a group to face a dangerous adversary. So I- across human time, I mean, if you're if you're a, you know a Bible reader, uh, you know that there is original uh, sin in the Garden of Eden. Um, and ever since then, humans have been at odds with each other. So there's, there's always been uh, conflict. Conflict has always existed across all of human time for all intent and purpose. And so when one group or tribe goes to attack another, contempt may have been useful for defense against that attack. When you, you build yourself up and you say, I'm, I'm stronger than that. We're better than that. We will conquer these people. We will defeat them. Now, mind you, both parties are probably saying that to each other, but in defensive times, um, especially in, in say the, the sports arena, it's easy to rally the troops, quote unquote, and say, you know, we're going to go out there and we're going to stomp them into the ground or whatever. And you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a feeling of superiority. That's, that's, that's contempt at work. And I don't know that it's necessarily harmful, uh, if it's done for entertainment purposes. And at the end of the game, you all shake hands and nobody's actually contemptuous of one another because it's temporary and fleeting. Um, but certainly, uh, across time, if you need to uh, prepare, you know the 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 warriors uh, for defense or for attack, um, you know perhaps those who were persuaded, uh, you know marshaled more courage and felt less empathy for the enemy. Because again, like I said, it's really hard to inflict pain upon another human being unless you think they're not like you or you think that they're lesser than you. And certainly, we saw that during World War II and Hitler's command of of his armies and what they did in the Holocaust. So, you know, there's, there's definitely a feeling of superiority there. Um, and then situations that elicit jealousy, greed, and, and rivalry are certainly breeding grounds for contempt. And then once the contempt is turned against other human beings or upon yourself, as we've explored earlier, it seems difficult to find anything positive or adaptive in the emotion. So perhaps it serves a socially constructive purpose when it's directed against those who objectively deserve it. You know, those who foster waste, pollution, immorality, oppression, crime, or war. Um, there's a possibility that contempt may serve as a force for maintaining social norms or group conformity, um, especially when you're opposing those t- types of things like, you know, crime and war and oppression and, and, and poverty and waste and pollution. Um, particularly if the cause of behavior is, you know, carelessness or, or neglect, you know, you might be looked upon with contempt. So if, if enough people share that contempt, it can become a strong pressure on the, on the deviant individual or individuals to clean up his or her act, uh, lest they be booted from the community. And that goes back to the shame function too. If you can, if you can leverage shame forward behavior upon the individual who's deviating from the group, then the idea is that you'd get them to conform back in and uh, the community can move forward in a healthy way, provided that, you know, again, this is an objective observation that, that the person's doing harm, not a subjective, you know, I just don't like the way that he wears his, you know, uh, that color of hat. Uh, that's not doing anyone harm. But certainly a lot of contempt, I know, goes into fashion statements. And I think we can, we can all relate to that, where uh, we hear, you know, I, I can't believe she's wearing those shoes with that outfit. Like, that's contemptuous, but it's not functional contempt. Uh, let her wear the shoes. It doesn't doesn't affect you at all. There's no there's no harm coming from that. 
Um, and there's no you know, illegal or immoral or unhealthy behavior out of that. So um, I'm going to wrap up there. There's, there's, more, uh, there's more to be said, especially from a, a sociological standpoint with regard to uh, you know, sections of people living in chronic contempt uh, without paying a price. Um, certainly, history tells us that you know prejudice against race or ethnic groups, um, you know, can can result in this long-standing contempt, and um, and cost people enormously in personal, social, economic categories. Uh, certainly, in the United States, we're, we've got a long checkered history of uh, the prejudice of whites against blacks and. Um, and enslavement and and this goes across all cultures and 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 lots and lots of people have suffered lots and lots uh the egyptians enslaved the israelites greeks enslaved the egyptians romans enslaved the greeks and so on and so forth and you know conquering means victory victory means superiority superiority leads to contempt and so when you have long-standing contempt uh the cost is very great to the human race and um so we want to be mindful of that and I, I think my my own two cents on this is that in today's world of hyperbolic uh, binary social media, uh, contempt is ever present in the us versus them mentality. I think if we start to see each other as human beings who are capable of all things that any other human being has ever done, then we see more similarities than dissimilarities, and we don't have to slip into that contemptuous, uh, disgusted us versus them combative uh, interaction that's that's just so harmful. It, it, it doesn't move humanity forward. It, it stalls it for sure and po- potentially moves it backward as people dig in and root their positions and get defensive and prepare, you know, like I laid out earlier, for combat, really. Uh, you're, you're building up your own contempt against the other uh, because they're not like you. And before you know it, people don't find a middle ground and and that's really scary and and dangerous and sad so um in summation if you've listened to this stuff and you want uh you want some help uh maybe you're facing some of this stuff maybe you're facing the self-loathing or the self-hatred um or maybe it's just stirred something within you you go man i got i got some grudges to release i need to seek forgiveness i need to i need to repent from the from my contemptuous ways it's not helping me it's not helping my family it's not helping my coworkers or my employees or whatever it is um, there are some resources and I'm going to read them off to you. So, uh, the first is, uh, psychologytoday.com. Uh, you can find a clinician in your local community just by typing in a zip code and they'll, they'll always display the insurances that they take and their price points and, and they'll have a little bio on there. I'm on there. You can look me up and, you know, look at Jake Wiskirchen and see what, what, what I have to say about myself. I'm not taking clients by the way, but, um, you can you so go to psychologytoday.com and find find a find a clinician for yourself if you want to explore some of these concepts a little bit more deeply, um, and go by the by the bio biographies that people write up there. Find somebody who looks like they'll fit with you. Another one is the therapist locator at aamft.org. That's the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. They have a therapist locator as well. Uh, it's specific to marriage and family therapists. Um, they're they. They're just trained differently than, uh, say, a clinical social worker or a, a licensed professional counselor. But but it's also a good resource, and and uh, it may not overlap with Psychology Today. So check both. And um, and then if you're listening in the UK, I want to point you toward Mind.org.uk and Sane S A N E 
thinkthink.org.uk. There's there's lots of resources there. Uh, bigthink.com I mentioned. And then there's also, you know, the Noggin Notes podcast. <laughs> I happen to think it's wonderful. <laughs> Maybe it's because I'm the host. I don't know. Uh, keep listening to us. And uh, if you want, and you have specific questions, write in. This is not a substitute for psychotherapy, obviously, but it is a nice uh, catalyst, I think, to... Uh, engage some some later you know reactions within within one's own psyche so uh, reach out and write me write us at info at nogginnotes.com or uh, info at zephyrwellness.org uh, that's my company I usually mention that in the intro and I'll uh, I'll be happy to answer your listener mail and uh, tackle specific questions with specific circumstances and I'll leave the names out of it if you want me to that all being said thanks for listening On behalf of the Noggin Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family, I wish you all great mental wellness, and we'll see you back next week. Bye.